0: From the same station that invented radio with subtitles.
1: This is the elixir of eternal youth, a worldly story told by a group of travelers, a history of Brisbane, Australia, and the world.
2: This is Radio in Colour.
1: A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's oldest youth radio station.
3: Welcome to episode four of Radio in Colour. In the hour that follows, you'll hear histories of this and other places. We will talk today about ambience history, the heritage that surrounds us. Today, we explore the long afterglow of the decade that started in 1975. We discuss the many ways in which the past exists in the present. We hear people's own memories of Queensland life in the 70s. And we listen to archival recordings from 4ZZZ, including the history of secret tapes smuggled out of Bogo Road Jail. We'll also hear from young people, how they learnt about political history of the decade that finished before they were even born. Before we end our show today, we acknowledge our inheritance of loss. We talk about Joe the Unbuilder, and of so much of Brisbane's heritage, of which only the memories remain. You're listening to Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate 40 years of Brisbane's Four Triple Z. I
4: am
5: I am Malcolm Barr. I'm a neurology researcher interested in the medical effects of chemicals, uh, in other words, chemical toxicology. I have been doing some work in Melbourne on the medical problems, the neurological and psychiatric problems of Vietnam veterans who were exposed to certain chemicals in Vietnam. you smell that?
6: you smell that? What? Naipon, son. Nothing else in the world smells like that. The smell of napalm in the morning. I remember a time when you weren't born with cancer, necessarily. People didn't catch it till they were 30,
7: 35. But who cares? We got these nice units you can slip into and they'll take you anywhere you want to go, walk you all over the place and... You can recharge your batteries almost any corner you can find. Why we
8: had to use our own legs and arms to get around in the old
7: days too. You kids ought to be happy. Shit. One of the
5: conclusions I've reached about the veterans is that every person has their breaking point.
8: my mind and break they're all to get you it takes more than tears to get rid of this pain
3: happening all around us. Some of these become history, others don't. They become nothing. In the same way things that once seemed normal become strange, events that seemed unimportant can turn out to be great moments in history. Most of us don't see ourselves as makers of history though, at least until later on. But whether we know it or not, we're all witnesses of history, though perhaps not first-hand witnesses. Today's episode explores this idea. How do people witness the history of the time before their time? Starting from the perspective of young lovers of history, we look at what the movies can tell us about the Vietnam War. We ask four people born in the 1980s to discuss how movies about the Vietnam War shaped their vision of the conflict. Our guests in this story were all from different parts of the world when they watched these movies. What they have in common is they were all children when they first saw them. Movies discussed in the next few minutes include Forrest Gump from 94, Rambo, which premiered in 1985, Platoon, which was released in 1986, and perhaps the most iconic of Vietnam movies, Apocalypse Now, which came out in
9: 1979. In 1980, which means, obviously I missed out on all the anti-war protests and all I got was the kind of you know, lingering effects and echoes of the fact that that was a big protest movement and kind of divided Australian politics for a while. And so I mainly got it, especially as a young boy, through pop culture sources. So there was an American TV show called Tour of Duty, which did a pretty good job for an American TV show, showing that this was an ugly war and really bad and fought for bad reasons and so on.
10: So what you saw in Vietnam, what you saw in other satellite cities was that each power set up sat- like sort of puppet regimes and that's what happened in the south and north in Vietnam. So you had a government set up by the US sponsored, um, wholly supported, funded by the US and in the north the same goes. And you see this in Afghanistan and you see this in you know other satellite countries. Like there were a few neutral countries like Indonesia but in those that weren't, that were in the developing world, you see this sort of creation of puppet states.
1: Yeah, but in the movies, right, in the cultural representations of this, of the war, of the Vietnam War, there is nothing about that, about the politics of it. This, like, oh no, because it wasn't fighting, right? Yeah,
10: exactly. And some Asian person mm. who doesn't, you know, is almost immaterial. They're the prop against which the fight for freedom is is waged. Like they're not they're not material at all to the narrative, because I think it's this this broader question. Like the whole reason we fought in these Cold War satellite battles was these greater you know like the the fight for a particular way of life and freedom against the communists, the reds under your bed.
1: And, and this perception as well, the domino effect, isn't it? That if one country, country in Asia falls. falls, it's going to be a spread, and then all of a sudden you'll have bloody communists in the Queen Street Mall or whatever yeah. you know in yeah, yeah. Forrest Gump so he's like he's kind of nature you know he's like um, the savage uh, Rousseau mm. you know yeah and, and Gump he has gumption about him He's not ignorant. He's just, ignorant. Oh, no, innocent. No, but he's in, in, in the
11: in the context of what you're saying, though, as a witness of history, mm-hmm. he doesn't understand the significance the of what he's all. doing. We understand the significance. Mm-hmm. And so we can, in that sense, feel better about ourselves than we think he can feel about himself because he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know that he doesn't know.
9: Mm-hmm. Um, and then movies like Platoon, which again shows that this was just kind of horrid practices of war making and... And making men these disciplined um, creatures that could go off and, and do this kind of stuff.
10: What about Good Morning Vietnam?
9: Yeah, I mean, that, that was obviously, you know, a much softer Hollywood kind of take on the war because it was mainly about repression of freedom of speech. Robin Williams is prepared to say a few soft truths about the war. And so then he gets kicked out of the radio and because he became So friends.
10: Platoon's much more gritty and much more actually about the war.
9: I mean, certainly, I mean, you know, that was this kind of dystopic image of these troops doing a lot of drugs, fighting amongst themselves, killing each other, and then getting bombed by their own side and then doing these awful things to the Vietnamese. I mean, that was really dark. Good Morning Vietnam was more like, if we only had freedom of speech, then everything would be okay.
10: But it's funny, isn't it? Because it was a war fought in another arena. So it was about us politics and about russian politics but the actual effects of the war were felt by a population who had nothing to do with anything at all that had anything to do with the war and the whole war for america and historians becomes something around well this is you know the the role of the media in war for example and the freedom of speech and the the disaffectation of of a country and its youth when you see the effects of war because you've shielded them before that and suddenly you've got, you know, like mass protests because they see cameras showing, you know, I mean, that image, that iconic image of that naked child running or screaming along the, the road in Vietnam and, you know, you're suddenly faced with the atrocities that war brings.
11: I think that's an interesting thing about the representation in movies with the Vietnam War because there seems to be much more emphasis on human story so what you might call post-traumatic stress disorder or like Rambo is a good example where where people come back and they're broken people whereas that's not so much of a strong narrative in in World War One and World War Two movies because they're successful so you wonder to what degree the breakdown of individuals yeah is a kind of alibi for bad reasons for going to war and for losing and there's much more emphasis there. And I think it's also interesting that there's not much more of a connection made between something like uh, Vietnam and, say, the first Iraq war. Yeah. Uh, and they fit into much diff- more different perspectives than something like World War One and Two. Yeah, you so I think Victor Plus Good Reasons is very different to, well, we need to focus on, like I said, it, it's, it seems to be a criticism, but maybe in a sense it's an alibi because we can concentrate on Terrible individual cost, and then not actually look at the political reasons, not actually look at the loss, um, and talk about the ingenious traps the Vietnamese were able to you know, lay, made out of bamboo.
3: Before I watched Apocalypse Now, I'd seen uh, quite a bit of stuff on the Vietnam War on TV from time to time. A lot of the time just in shows that I'd watch normally as a kid, so like The Simpsons or something like that, they might have um, something on it. The principal Skinner was a Vietnam War veteran and sometimes would have flashbacks to the Vietnam War, um, but I didn't get very much serious information about the Vietnam War. I didn't know too much about it. There was a relative of mine, an uncle, who had been in the Vietnam War, but I didn't know too much about his experiences, and I just certainly didn't know about a lot of the... I guess you could say, radical social things that were happening over in Vietnam that some of the soldiers were doing. So yeah, not that much. Apocalypse Now is a pretty strange movie. You know, there's this guy who has a mission to go and kill an uh, army colonel who has gone crazy. Terminate, the colonel. Terminate with extreme prejudice. And there's a sort of like, odyssey-like journey in a boat up, up a river. I can't remember which, which river it is. Into Cambodia to find this guy and assassinate him. I have no idea whether that ever happened in the Vietnam War, so I can't say whether that was real or not. But some of the things were pretty interesting, like all of the soldiers were, you know, were men. Obviously, a lot of them were really young, so there was a lot, and it was the 60s, so there was experimentation with drugs and all that sort of stuff that they were doing. They do this in the movie, and and so there's a bit of craziness to the movie, which is it's kind of bizarre. In a way, because they're fighting a war, but they're doing all of this stuff like skiing on the back of the boat. And they meet officer, army officer who is obsessed with surfing. And he finds that one of the members of the boat crew is a famous surfer. So he wants to go surfing with this guy in the middle of a battle. So I, I guess what it sort of shows uh, that I didn't know about Vietnam before seeing the movie was this sort of crazy side that some of the soldiers had maybe what it could tell us is about the way that the war had a serious effect on people's minds so this colonel colonel kurtz goes nuts and sort of starts to think of himself as like a god in a way you know like he's the god and all of these cambodian tribes people are his people and he's ordering them around like his own private army <laughs>
12: Veterans March, Washington DC, 25th of April 1971, John Pilger. The US invasion of Cambodia in 1970 to destroy Viet Cong bases intensified anti-Vietnam war demonstrations around the world. The war did not end until April 1975 when the South Vietnamese government surrendered and Saigon fell without a struggle. The truth is out. Mickey Mouse is dead. The good guys are really the bad guys in disguise. The speaker is William Wyman from New York City. He is 19 and has no legs. He sits in a wheelchair on the steps of the United States Congress in the midst of a crowd of 300,000, the greatest demonstration America has ever seen. He has on green combat fatigues and the jacket is torn where he has ripped away the medals and the ribbons he has been given in exchange for his legs. And along with hundreds of other veterans of the war in Vietnam... He has hurled them on the Capitol steps and described them as shit. And now to those who form a ring of pity around him, he says, Before I lost these legs, I killed and killed. We all did. Jesus, don't grieve for me. All week the veterans have been in Washington. Never before in this country have young soldiers marched in protest against the war. They themselves have fought and which is still going on. They have stopped mr and mrs america in the street and told them about the gore and what they did which they describe as atrocities they have marched or tried to march a battalion of shuffling stick figures to the department of defense where they have tried to give themselves up only to be told by a bemused one-star general sorry we don't take american prisoners here dale granada a former quartermaster on a destroyer shouting through a loud hailer describes to rush-hour shoppers how he helped to raise a Vietnamese village. Listen to this, friends. The whole village was burning, but the spotter planes reported people fleeing across the open fields. So we switched to fragmented shells and began to chop the people up. Then we began firing phosphorus shells and watched them burn. The veterans' presence in Washington today is deeply confusing to the American mood. A police sergeant on duty at the Capitol says... Hell, I'd throw in my badge before I touched these guys. A businessman who was just passing by now fussily clears a path for Bill Loivey, who has spent two years in military hospitals and will always need crutches. An old couple, he in red baseball cap, she in blue rinse, have come up from Georgia to see Washington in in the spring, and now they march with a woman who lost a son over there. Even a party of enormous ladies from the Daughters of the American Revolution an organisation that would gleefully detonate the world tomorrow and which happened to be meeting in Washington today, stand transfixed and almost crying, almost as the carnage passes them by, including Jack Saul from California wearing a grotesque mask of Richard Nixon smiling. And when someone asks Jack jokingly what he himself looks like, he takes it off and reveals a face that looks as though he has just finished pouring acid on it
3: peace, he says. That was Tony Knipe reading from John Pilger's 1971 essay on the Vietnam Veterans March in Washington. You're listening to the fourth episode of a special documentary series to celebrate the 40 years of Brisbane Community Radio 4ZZZ. In the next 21 episodes, you'll hear a history of Brisbane, a history of Australia, and the world, as told by witnesses of history like Forrest Gump, but without the box of chocolates. Probably the way most of us witness change is through movements in the physical world itself. But I'm not talking so much here about the seasons or the tides or even climate change. I'm talking about our built environment. I'm talking here about the changing face of an iconic area just south of Brisbane City. It's not a suburb, really, it's a place. Boggo Road Jail was a notorious institution that only closed down in the late 1980s. Coming up, you'll hear archival recordings of the Boggo Road riots from 1984 and more recent recordings featuring the historical society that operates heritage tours in the old jail. Research for this piece was contributed by Dr. Heather Anderson from the University of South Australia. Heather is a long-serving volunteer with 4ZZZ. ...prisoners at
13: Brisbane's Boggo Road Jail took it over for five days and burnt about a third of it down. For years before that riot, prisoners had been complaining unsuccessfully about inhumane treatment and living conditions. Amongst their grievances are routine bashings and intimidation, rotten food, an unfair parole system, and severe restrictions on visits and letters. The Queensland prison's philosophy is perhaps summarised by two of two memorable quotes from Minister Geoff Munt. I'm rather tired of the cry of civil liberties that's gone up within the prison. And referring to the 600 hunger-striking prisoners, he said, if they don't want to eat the food, then they can starve. Within 20 minutes of that statement being broadcast on ABC Radio, Brisbane Jail was in flames.
3: That's from a 4ZZZ report on the month's inquiry into the infamous Boggo Road riots. We'll hear more from that inquiry, but to fill you in, here's the backstory.
14: Early in 1983, 4 Z received a painting from a prisoner at Bogo Road which was displayed in the station foyer. After a couple of months, word filtered through to 4ZZZ volunteers to look at the back of the painting. When they did, they found a toilet roll with cassette tapes wound around it. The tape was re-wound onto a cassette to reveal at least six long-term Bogo Road prisoners speaking about conditions inside the jail. Journalists and later Prisoners Show volunteer John Baird described the contents as explosive and the first indication from the horse's mouth of what it was like inside Boggo Road. 4ZZ broadcast the tape and attracted mainstream media attention both for the issues raised by the prisoners and for the manner in which the station had received the recordings. The relationship between 4 Z and the prison's department deteriorated from that date, and the station was warned it could be charged with being involved in clandestine communications with prisoners. Ultimately, no charges were laid. In November 1983, there was an outbreak of food poisoning at the prison that led to 30 people being put in hospital. Inside Information broadcast a message from prisoners announcing a hunger strike and a demonstration to be held outside the prison in solidarity. The hunger strike had overwhelming support from the prison population and the situation in the prison became quite tense. The then prisons minister Jeff Munts, new to the job at the time, held a press conference and when asked about the hunger strike said, The protesters have been offered food and if they don't eat it then they can starve for all I care. 4ZZZ journalists were covering the press conference, recording the minister's comments and broadcast them. Many of the prisoners were listening to 4 Z, and within minutes prisoners began destroying cells and other prison property. Fires broke out in several areas, screws and riot gear retreated from the wing areas and called in police reinforcements to maintain security on our outer walls. During the first night of the riot, journalists and activists managed to speak to prisoners in one of the wings. Prison officers moved in to prevent them from continuing to do this. One prisoner shouted, The screws are outside my cell. They're going to give me a hiding for talking to you. Hey, if they're going to bash me, you can watch. Those words became the soundbite of the riot, and the allegations that prisoners were being seriously assaulted by prison officers in riot gear with batons was to be confirmed later in the week, when two prisoners climbed a roof to show the baton marks on their backs to the TV news cameras assembled outside. They said that protests would continue, that there was great camaraderie in the jail and thanked 4ZZZ for its support and commitment. From the rooftop a message was shouted down, I lost my subscriber card in the riot, can you send me another one? The outcome of the riots was an inquiry into the prison system that heard evidence from 4ZZZ and prisons reform activists and recommended a number of reforms including healthier food, better visiting systems and the closure of the infamous Underground Detention Unit at Boggo Road. From these events, 4ZZZ very much established a reputation as an important catalyst for change in terms of prison relations in Queensland. Tania Saul reported for 4ZZZ about the protest that was happening that day.
15: We were
8: standing at the opposite end of Boggo Road. We could actually see visually, not that well, but we could actually see figures of people standing, men standing at the uh, bars and um they're being gassed inside they're being bashed inside and all they're asking for is basic human rights now this is the people inside bogger road who also who on the off chance might have um radios on And what we want to say to them is that there are a lot of people outside who are standing out in the street in Annalee Road, and Bunga Road, who support you and are in full solidarity with you. And we're also saying to you to not speak to anyone until you actually get a solicitor.
3: In the aftermath of the riots, Prisons Minister Jeff Muntz was forced to hold an inquiry into the matter. 4 was with the minister at a press conference, and he wasn't very forthcoming in explaining how it would all work. In the 12 months since the riot, the Labor
13: opposition, the Civil Liberties Council, the Prisoners Action Group and even the Courier Mail have all been calling for a judicial inquiry into the prison system and the causes of the riot. Munz has consistently refused this and has only allowed one highly controlled media inspection of the jail, that was in April. But last week he announced a different sort of inquiry into claims that the jail was badly administered and that prisoners were buying parole, selling drugs and running bookmaking outfits. These claims have originated from the Special Squad, an elite group of prison officers noted for their hardline views on punishment. They form the right wing of the Prison Officers' Union. In his press statement, Muntz blandly said the Inquiry would look at management problems, including a breakdown in communications. This just might be official talk for prison officers doing what they like and not telling the administration who are doing their best not to find out anyway. At his press conference on Monday, Jeff Muntz once again showed incredible ignorance of how his department and the legal system is supposed to work. To every question about the details of the Inquiry's legal powers and, and public access to it, he simply said... Anyone with allegations could come forward as long as they had evidence. When asked why it was simply a departmental inquiry and not a judicial hearing or even a public hearing, the Minister just said, because it's not, and because it's not necessary. But he did stress it would be an independent inquiry under the leadership of career public servant Sir David Longland.
5: Sir so David Longwood will make recommendations, and certainly, mm-hmm. if those recommendations I feel they're the correct ones, they'll be uh, implemented you straight keep away.
0: Talk, keep talking malfunction, Minister. But are we talking about bent prison officers who aren't? No, I'm not talking about bent, bent prison, prison officers at all. Prisoners.
5: No, I'm not talking about bent prison officers at all. I repeat, I have the, I have mm-hmm. the greatest confidence in the prison officers within the Queensland system, but. Unfortunately, because of the continuing allegations, and you know those allegations as well as I do, every month there's allegations of graft and corruption, surely it's my responsibility to put them to rest and clear the good name of all prison officers. Now, if there is one, whether it be inside the prison or outside the prison, surely you would expect me to have him charged if there's sufficient evidence.
0: So Sir David Longman will be looking to investigate the allegations of corruption.
5: If he has any evidence or any evidence of any nature of allegations, whether it be graft, corruption uh, drugs or whatever he will immediately place them in the hands of the commissioner of police which, about, which is the appropriate authority to investigate criminal charges what are you talking about, you about
13: an the corruption and drugs but will you be investigating the, the more serious allegations of routine bashings of prisoners uh, the administration ignoring their legitimate grievances inhuman
5: conditions food all the all the conditions which led to the riot a year and a week ago today it, and that still every allegation every allegation placed before the Commission will be investigated. And
16: does he have the power of
5: subpoena? He doesn't need the power of subpoena at this stage.
8: Surely, if he 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 has any
5: evidence of corruption, of a criminal nature, the right uh, department authority to place that before is the Commissioner of Police.
16: Nobody could argue that. if allegations are made against a certain person, say a prison officer, will this inquiry have the power to then call that prison officer before the inquiry?
5: No, if there's any evidence of those allegations. Surely, we can all make allegations, anybody can make allegations, but there has to be, has to be some proof well, and some evidence. The evidence. The do job? The evidence? Well, uh, will
4: some prisoners
16: order? be given the protection of anonymity if they, have, uh, if they have claims to make against waters, for example, or will they be forced to uh, go public?
5: Not at all. I I, I don't know what... I just don't quite well, get one to one the point. One of the
16: problems in the past has been that, that prisoners are afraid to make allegations against waters, for example, because of possibility of recrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you going to afford
5: them some protection so that they can. Um, uh There's no. Uh, now, I said if anybody has allegations to make that, you'd have proof to make those allegations. But you isn't know, that what you, de- you can't inquiry? can't make, make allegations make against an individual or somebody else unless you've got some proof, and surely that's fair enough. Well, isn't that what inquiries proof.
13: and police forces are for? Is there any other proof? So Sir David going into the prison and uh, taking admissions from prisoners? Minister, question. are you going to answer that question or
5: not? I've told you what I will thought Will Sir David go into
13: the prison and answer those
8: questions? Are there any other questions?
13: Will Sir David hear from prisoners what's wrong with that question
5: is that not good enough to be answered is yeah, this is this political censorship that's what i want to know is it, it? of where you come from that's for sure well you could, you could answer that question you? minister that's a would go into the perfectly reasonable question sir david well, if it comes uh, from you i would yeah why well, what's well, that again will sir david go into the prison to conduct his inquiry is uh, sir david will have access to the prison that's for sure yeah that's an elementary i didn't think it'd be You'd need to a- uh, ask that, really. What How can he conduct an inquiry if he didn't go into the prison? Mr. It's a pretty stupid question, really. Well, that's no reflection on you, but it's a reflection what on something else. What
16: guarantees will the inquirer be able to give to prisoners who give evidence that they won't suffer any form of uh, retribution once they get back inside the prison system?
5: They can make the allegations they've made in the past to Sir David uh, through correspondence, if they say so wish. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I can... Uh, through the correspondence. won't be
16: able to afford them any protection, though. No,
5: they've got the protection of the Brisbane prison of the of the of the prison system, and that's it's as I said, it's the best in Australia, and uh, I would even say it's probably the best in the world.
7: It is. But this investigation
16: one, but the, the may not be able to get to the bottom of it because prisoners will be too frightened to come
8: forward give
5: their evidence. Yes, I'm not greatly concerned about the the prisoners. I'm concerned about the prison officers number one, and I'm pr- also concerned about the security of the public, the um, the humane treatment of prisoners. And their rehabilitation. And their number reaction. one priority in any prison system is the, is the security outside the prison. And that's your friends and my friends and your family and, and my family. Uh, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't it? it's would not a, a public that? open inquiry. Well, why not? This is the, this
0: because problem. it's not. This is the, this because it's not. Because it's not.
13: it's, the, it's, not. it's, the, it's, it's, it's Minister, it's, you're obviously not interested <laughs> in the allegations by prisoners. <laughs> else? Isn't this just yeah. a whitewash? Yeah.
3: Triple Z won the Public Broadcasting Association annual Gold Reed Award for the coverage. That's the history. Now we go to Boggo Road in the present.
17: So brick by brick it was built up. Brick by brick it was pulled right back to just the number two division and we're standing in the gatehouse right here. The tour begins in division two. a cold, stark hallway. It's where women were first sent and was eventually closed in 1989 after dramatic escapes, hunger strikes and rooftop protests. In fact, in situations where an officer were not properly keeping an eye on things in the gatehouse, there would be an escape. Leaving Division Two at Bogorod Jail is signalled by the tolling of a bell. I'm here with someone who knows a lot about E-Wing, and in fact, a lot about this entire prison. His name is Jack Sim.
15: And I'm the director of Boggo Road Jail and Proprietary Limited, who hold the licence to operate tours and events at the prison. E-Wing, and it's one of the three original surviving um, prison cell blocks here at Boggo Road Jail's number two division.
17: What are the purposes of the the three tours that you hold here at the jail?
15: There's a long and rich history be told within these walls so we have a standard history tour which talks about everything from what prisoners ate through to you know, what it was like uh, to be locked in these cells. We have an escapes tour which looks at the escapes from the prison and there are quite a number of some of Australia's most uh, infamous jailbreaks happened here and then we also have a nighttime ghost tour as well which captures the old ghost stories from former prisoners and, uh, and officers that walk this place at night. We we hope that when people come and do the tours here, that they get a real sense of the people, the characters, from prison warders and officers through to um, the story of male and and female prisoners and life inside what was arguably the most notorious prison in the twentieth century in Australia.
17: And so, what's the current situation with the tours?
15: Well, the current situation is that as at the end of um, October, that uh, the jail Um, will close for guided tours. The the jail is to be redeveloped and the jail and surroundings is to be part of a a wider reuse of what was once the the jail reserve, parts of the jail, and indeed the the modern parts of the jail dating to the late 1960s, 1970s. um, It is planned that they will be demolished. Uh, I'm Daniel Gray. I'm a tour guide at Boggo Road Jail. I'm
5: concerned uh, that there'll be um, uh, a bit of amnesia. We, we tend to have a bit of a short memory here in Queensland, and uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about working here has been uh, talking to people about the history of the place. We, we tend to uh, sort of forget uh, the unhappy parts of Queensland's history a lot of the time, and... One of the things that I think it's very important about running tours or even having any kind of education about Boggo Road Jail is uh, acknowledging that we've we've done the wrong thing in the past.
18: And here is today's reading from the book of radiology chapters ZZ to ZZZ verses 105.7 to 102.1 and here beginneth the lesson and it was around that time when things and other things had come to pass. For it was the latter part of the 19th millennium and throughout the land and up and down the coast and in the area known today as Brisbane were not the people subjected to the plague of the AM radio stations from which emanated the music lifestyles and politics of the cloth-eared repeated on the hour ad nauseam, ad nauseam, ad nauseam and were not the righteous sick of it and felt not a little put out for in their minds they knew there must be something better than the oppression of music lovers, blacks, prisoners and stereotypes of all sexes. And yet, even though the word Stereo FM had not yet formed upon the lips of the powerful tribunes, in the steamy thickets of tropical undergrowth, Among the wooden stumps of their peculiar dwellings. And in the hearts of those with the vision. The devious plans of callow youths were already being laid. And here beginneth the lesson. Our story beginneth on a tiny windswept dot on the great Pacific Rim. Born into isolation, the inhabitants have developed a peculiar social system based on tow trucks, aerobic supervillain worship, and a sudden uneasiness in the stomach whenever the French colonialist pig dogs have an atom bomb test. It is day three since the last test, and already the giant mutant lobsters... Mutant lobsters? Whoops, sorry, wrong movie. That was I was an unborn fetus atom bomb victim. Why don't we start again?
3: When thinking about built histories, they don't always evolve in a nice way. There's much to be missed in the way cities around the world have changed over the years. For quite a while, Brisbane was seen as the big country cousin to the more developed, more cosmopolitan cities to our south. It wasn't until the 60s that we even had a proper sewerage network installed. But the way the city changed in the next couple of decades is for many as much a story about what was knocked down as it is for what was put up. The Beokie-Peterson era of
2: 1968 to 1987 was famous for development, that is, ill-advised and widely resisted urban expansion and high-rise development that led to a lot of Brisbane's built and natural heritage being destroyed. The story of the midnight demolition of the Cloudland Ballroom and the Bellevue Hotel are well-known examples of the operations of the Queensland government. Today, we look at different aspects of Queensland's invisible heritage, a more subtle and perhaps intimidating aspect of its political history, which is the climate of fear and repression that the government built, and the resistance and rebellion it begat from many young people, including many who volunteered at Radio 4 Z in the early days. You'll hear from long-term 4 Z announcer and board member Andrew Bartlett, as well as from the Premier himself shortly. But before we do, here's Peter Roweda discussing how the government inspired and drove Brisbane's musicians.
1: We are we Peter Roweda, who's the station manager at Radio 4EB 98.1 FM, and so Peter, we want to talk with you about one song from the 70s that you like. Which song would that be?
4: Being from Brisbane, I'll have to select The Saints and I'm Stranded.
1: And so, how how would you say that this song is representative of the 70s? I
4: think. Uh back in those times I guess we didn't have the communication that we have now and uh, often there's that ability to just be away from people and in particular, sometimes yeah, feel like you're left out or left behind in some instances, yeah.
1: And how is the song meaningful to you? Do you remember listening to it when you were growing up?
4: Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, I was, uh, was hearing it later <laughs> than 76 uh, because I was only uh, quite young <laughs> when it was first released. Uh, but definitely hearing it many times over the years and, uh, you know, you know the words, you can sing along and um, uh, definitely, yeah. And being positioned in uh, uh, the inner city, it definitely you know when people can uh, see you know old real estate and uh, think about where the song and, and even the film clip where it's positioned and stuff like that it's, it's nice
1: so so what's the story of the song what do the lyrics say
4: well it's uh it, it's basically being stranded outside of the city um and uh you know <laughs> uh just rough detail but uh, uh cuz the band you know Back in the days, you know, some people might have been out Ipswich Way or in Brisbane and, and you know, relying on the train service and uh, getting, getting to the inner city. And then um, obviously the systems are not as good as they are today and uh, being rock and roll and uh, being able to be with your friends is a, is a key part of it, you know?
6: Calling on the phone I've got no time to be alone Some are coming at me all the time You better think I lose my mind Cause I'm stranded on my own I'm Stranded far from home Alright I'm riding on a midnight train But everybody just do the same I'm on a bit of of final direction, and I'm stranded on my own. Stranded, far from home. Alright, stranded, I'm so far from home. Stranded, yeah, I'm on my own. Stranded. Gotta leave it alone Cause I'm stranded on my own Stranded far from home Come on Does not man run at you Made man saying I can't do You lost your mind stuck in the world Your honey
2: such a stupid girl Punk hit Brisbane like no other city in Australia wrote musician Robert Forster in 2007. The tentacles that grew out of New York and London from the musical explosion of 1976 affected the receptive, waiting enclaves in each major city around the globe in varying ways. As the music and images of the Ramones, Patti Smith, early Pair Ubu, television and the Sex Pistols were heard and seen, bands formed, systems started and the word spread. Brisbane was different for two main reasons. We had Bjerke Peterson and the Saints. Bjerke Peterson represented the kind of crypto-fascist, bird-brain conservatism that every punk lead singer in the world could only dream of railing against. His use of a blatantly corrupt police force and its heavy-handed response to punk gave the scene a political edge, largely absent in the other states. And the Saints were the musical revolutionaries in the city's evil heart. From the early days of the station, 4 Z played alternative music and supported local music. One key player in this scene was Ed Kuepper from The Saints, who is on record saying, The importance of 4 Z in the development of an independent music and art scene in Brisbane cannot be overstated, often being the only local station to offer support of local and interstate bands that operate outside of the mainstream music industry. It wasn't just rock and roll playing on the stereo, there was also politics, and what politics. From the beginning, 4 Z kept a close watch on the comings and goings of the government, and given its popularity with younger audiences, it held considerable influence in Queensland politics. In fact, Joe was a regular guest on Z news programs. Here's an excerpt from a 1981 story done to mark the premier's 70th birthday, which the 4 Z announcer starts by asking Sir Joe what his office had planned to celebrate his youthful anniversary.
19: Uh, Sort of a holiday, or to be free. Uh, That doesn't happen very often in my life.
18: Well, what are you going to do for the rest of the day?
19: Well, the rest of the day I I have, uh, I think my staff have an an afternoon tea or cake prepared for me. And just as the media had a very lovely cake, I had two pieces of it. It was so nice. Uh, Thank you very much to Channel O. A pleasure, a pleasure. <laughs> I'm sure they'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, <know. laughs> I, I have Queensland on the Nine Network. <laughs> <laughs> well, I take it next year I'll get a cake from every channel. <laughs>
18: what about at home this evening, sir?
19: Well, at home tonight, uh, my daughters and my son, my son, two son in laws, uh, together with Florence and myself, will be uh, having a lunch and dinner together. Yes. What sort
18: yeah. of presents have you got today?
19: I have I've had. Uh, uh well the christmas ca- the birthday cake uh, there, there hasn't been really anything in the line of presents not that i expected or, or wanted but i uh, i'm waiting to see what they have at home they'll have something at home for sure
0: you've requested something
19: i did yes i requested not requested but i often threw out the idea that uh, i've always been fond of flying and i haven't got a little plane of my own at the moment i've had many over the years i suppose seven or eight But uh, I said, oh, I'd love to have a little aeroplane again, I have a nice airstrip hanger and so on. But one of these days that'll turn up, uh, as long as you're patient and wait. But I don't expect it, it's only joking.
0: Three score a year
18: and ten, Yeah. Uh, a lot of people would say it's time to relax and enjoy life.
19: Well, I I am enjoying life very much now. And uh, generally I am very relaxed, otherwise I wouldn't survive the the pressures or the uh, long hours. Quite, because quite apart from the political pressure, the, the uh, one that takes coping with is this from, from early morning in the morning, half past five this morning, till, say, often midnight. It'll be close to midnight tonight. And here in the city and in politics, that goes on night after night after night.
18: Isn't it getting to be too much, though?
19: No, it isn't, because I, can manage, I enjoy it. And uh, I, I like uh, being active, and, and it's a challenge.
18: Well, when do you give it up, sir?
19: Well, I, I, I wouldn't know. I'm committed for the next three years, that's sure. And the next election, I guess when that time comes, it'd probably be an election that I would uh, take a part in, for sure.
2: Ineffectual opposition from the Labour Party a politicized police force and public service, as well as heavily skewed electoral boundaries all helped Sir Joe Bjorkie Peterson rise to power and stay there as Premier of Queensland between August 8, 1968 and December 1, 1987. The man ruled as Premier of Queensland for 19 years with almost total disregard of Parliament, the bureaucracy and convention. His term in office came to an end with the findings of the Fitzgerald Royal Commission into police corruption. In a journalistic investigation from ABC's Four Corners, aired on May 1987, journalist Chris Masters reported that police in Brisbane had been ignoring and even condoning illegal gambling, organized prostitution and drug trafficking. The program, titled The Moonlight State, alleged that police were being paid $100,000 a month by massage parlour and illegal casino operators. The day after the program, an independent judicial inquiry was announced into the long-standing rumours that senior police were being paid to protect organised crime. People who remember the time, among them 4ZZZ volunteer Andrew Bartlett, say the worst aspect of the police corruption was not the kickbacks for illegal brothels and casinos, it was the gross abuse of police powers to intimidate political opponents.
7: This shows how much of an impact it had on me, I guess. This is a photo of Joe Bjork-Peterson with a double-barrelled shotgun and the Joe for PM sticker above it. And that's the 1997 federal election where, again, a sign of just how delusional and, and crazed the whole situation got, where it just became all-powerful, all, all powerful, I guess. And because Queensland doesn't have an upper house, then the government can just do what it likes. And it was very much that, that feel about this untouchable... You know, king at the top of it all and a, a group of people, again developers and business people looking for big bucks for themselves, convinced themselves somehow that he could actually become Prime Minister, which is just lunacy but that just shows the lunacy of the times that, that a lot of people somehow thought it was a viable prospect So, and I guess the photo of him with his shotgun um, a bit of the Wild West feel to the whole place at the time and you know, the sheriff running people out of town, you know, don't want your types around here, all that sort of stuff, fairly symbolic for me.
2: The suppression of political dissent generated real and legitimate fear amongst many in the community. When police can get away with physically assaulting people with almost total immunity, you are literally in a police state. Maybe not as serious in scale as the South African or other oppressive regimes of the time, but a police state nonetheless, says Bartlett. Between 68 and 87, there were many instances of police violence, of which the best known is probably the worst. It happened in 1971, and it involved breaking up demonstrations against the Springboks, the South African rugby team, which saw 36 people beaten and arrested by the Queensland police. TV cameramen and press photographers were also hassled by police and had their film confiscated. The protests were against the apartheid regime that was then in power in South Africa.
8: Eight rows of
17: policemen, and they just suddenly they got the word, and they chased, they chased yeah, they us down just that hill. We had, we like jumped
10: the over load. the fence, and they chased us out over the fence, over the way, and just pushing, pushing. All these plain clothes guys, you've got a thing on, bunching just punching me on the head, yeah. and, and arresting me. People couldn't us. get
19: away quick enough. They
10: just
8: chased
19: couldn't get away. Oh, chasing us. Oh, bloody hell! I've never seen anything like this uh, um, anywhere in the world
2: the police baton charge on the Springbok demonstrators was a major radicalising event for the student population at Queensland University. Many of the students who were beaten or who simply witnessed the brutal attack were attending their first political rally. The effect was to instantly galvanise a large body of students and political activists into a subculture of resistance to the Bjelke-Peterson government and the Queensland police. In Brisbane Today there are few reminders of the police brutality that characterized the Bjorkie Peterson era. But it was very clear back then. As an issue of 4ZZZ's Radio Times put it in 1985, 4 Z has always had a policy of fearless revelation of Queensland police overkill. Whenever arrests start at marches or pickets in Queensland, the chant goes up. Queensland, police state, demand the right to demonstrate. As you're being dragged off to the paddy wagon, It's nice to have the issues defined so clearly. Back in the 70s and early 80s, political activists were continually having their houses raided and searched, with the constant fear that drugs might be planted. Cars were followed and often stopped, and occupants questioned or searched for no particular reason. Racist behaviour by law enforcement agencies has a long history in Australia. But the mistreatment of Aboriginal people in this era was extreme. All creating a suspicion and resentment which will burn deep amongst many Aboriginal people for years to come. And for a while there, it sounded like Joe would be Queensland's premier expert commodity, but luckily that didn't come to pass. Here's what you need to know about how Joe's tilt for PM led to the end of his term, but first we listen to local experimental musicians, Topology, with a song about these events.
15: That has been dishonest. We want an honest, open government—men that we can trust, men that will
19: inspire confidence in the community. We we no longer wanted this a discredited government, a government that has been dishonest on various occasions. We we no longer wanted this a
0: discredited
15: government, a government that has been.
0: Joe for PM did not actually last that long, it was only a matter of weeks before Bob Sparks was then referring to Joe for Canberra rather than Joe for PM. Part of the reason for that was because the, the promised money for this campaign just never, didn't eventuate. There was speculation at the beginning of $25 million coming in, it never, it never eventuated. That's the sort of money you needed if you were going to fund a national, uh, nationwide advertising, publicity, the whole box and dice like that, the whole thing sort of collapsed completely. But The whole thing barely lasted six months. He agrees with John Howard that he will not make a run for for Parliament and that he'll, he'll, he'll cooperate with the Liberal Party in return for the Liberal Party toughening up its tax policies. They dreamed, basically, yes, they dreamed of bringing into or behind their policies, behind their priorities, those sitting liberals and nationals who supported them, and encouraging other people from the so-called new right, which was quite a powerful organisation.
12: Sir Joe, Ian Sinclair says that you've got a lot to answer for
19: tonight. John Velders said you're like John Wayne who's fallen off his horse. The interesting thing is I do not accept any blame. I never intend to and never have to. There's no reason to accept the blame. The only thing I blame myself for is that I didn't continue to go myself because every poll that we had indicated that we would go up 3 or 4% every time my uh, personality or my running uh, presented itself. But when it was taken out, we went down. Now, that's the only thing I blame myself for.
0: I was the federal director. In those days, the federal director of the National Party was appointed by the federal leader. My job was to help the federal leader and the federal president of the organisation. That was that was it, quite clearly. So, yes, it was extremely frustrating because the whole Joe campaign was aimed at upsetting the coalition arrangement in Canberra and the leadership of, of Ian Sinclair. I think Joe, having been so successful at the state level, 83, 86, was then, you know, everybody was in his ear. He was, as I said, the standout conservative leader. A lot of influential people getting into his ear saying, you should be Prime Minister. I, I really think it all sort of went to his head. Mm. I just think it went to his head.
19: I'd like to thank you very, very much for your great interest always in subject of this nature. You do try and do a good job. Thank you very much indeed.
3: You've been listening to Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to mark the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's oldest youth radio station. And you've just heard a history of built and demolished heritage in Brisbane and beyond. We acknowledge the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and our production partners, Brisbane Radio Stations 4EB 98.1 FM and 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, as well as the State Library of Queensland's The Edge, which teaches digital skills to Queenslanders from all walks of life. Learn something today. Visit edgeqld.org.au. The MDA, Multicultural Development Association, is also a partner in this project, and thanks go out to them too. Radio in Colour is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries, including Iran, Sudan, Uruguay, Syria, and Australia. You can learn more about our work on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au and you can also listen to our stories on the move on Soundcloud. Episode 4 of Radio in Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland as well as radio stations 4EB and 4ZZZ. We'd be lost without Brisbane's cultural institutions, which have made us all feel very welcome. This show was produced by Carolina Caliaba and Steven Regol. Ni Adopoyibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. My name is Stephen Rogal. Special thanks to our guests today, Andrew Bartlett, Tony Knipe, and through the magic of digital recordings, Sir Joe Bielke-Peterson. And a special thanks to Kim Stewart. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website, 4 zzfmorgau I'm so glad you you're all here with me.
19: At the very end.